1: Heavy Pencil
2: An actor of my experience, you just get not run dry
1: A podcast sitcom with Anna Crilly and Tony Gardner I played played
2: Edmund Gelder and he played Fanny Snatch
1: The Observer called it A Lovely Thing Wonderfully funny Pitched perfectly Produced with a light touch I'm not having any more of this I need you to pull me off immediately Heavy Pencil from Great Big Owl The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl
2: family this will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words.
1: What do you like listen to? Um, <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> chart music.
2: up you, pop crazy youngsters, and welcome to part three of episode number fifty-seven of chart music. I'm your host, Al Needham. Here I am with my good friends Neil Culcony and Simon Price, and we're not fannying about. We're going to rejoin the episode in progress.
1: So anyway, if you come to sing to our cows, you see they lay more eggs. Should you come and sing to the cows? Yes, I will. Ladies and gentlemen, here we have a fresh, vibrant young star, Michael Ward. And look at him in all his. Ooh, he's like a fresh artist. And uh, how do you cram all these it's into when you're doing schoolwork? Well, I have to do my schoolwork at weekends for what I miss during the week. Good grief. I just go in with a cup of tea and a tape and, you know, you know, you're going the hard way about it. Still, you've got a lovely pair of tonsils that constantly need exercise, so you're going to give us your latest hit. What's it called? Let there be peace on earth. Lovely.
2: He back to the studio to find Everett next to a young lad in his best shirt who he interviews about school routines and the like. It's Michael Ward who sings his latest single, Let There Be Peace On Earth. Born in Workington in 1959, Michael Ward was a boy soprano who had played local music festivals, charity concerts and old folk homes, known nowadays as the David Van Day circuit. <laughs> until his sister recommended him for the ITV talent show Opportunity Knocks. After passing the audition earlier this year, he became an immediate hit, becoming the reigning champion for six weeks on The Bounce, one more than even the other big discovery of 1973, Peters and Lee. He was immediately signed up by Philips Records, who would later put out Mr Most Sincerely's borderline fascist diatribe stand-up and be countered, in an attempt to replicate the success of Neil Reed, whose mother of mine got to number two for three weeks in January of 1972, which was held off number one by I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing by the New Seekers. Fucking hell. He's already been lined up for an appearance on Stars on Sunday, and has the odd live gig on the club circuit when school holidays allow and this his debut single entered the charts at number 36 at the end of september dropped one place the week after that but this week it's moved up 13 places to number 24 and here he is living the dream of every 13 year old lad Opportunity Knox was fucking massive at this time. I mean, if if you're going by audience figures, this is a step down for Young Michael. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Inevitably, I never, I never watched it. It was something that was watched every week in our houses. I mean, on our
3: grandpas as well. I've seen clips. It looks, it looks nuts. It looks absolutely nuts. Oh, it is that Huey Green guy, right? Oh, um, have have you read the bit in Danny Baker's book? Yes, where, yes, <laughs> where he talks, he talks about Huey Green summoning him to his house and this would have been around the time of TFI Friday being a big deal Mm. so um, Huey Green's got some idea that he wants to discuss with Danny Baker for a TV project and he's got this massive model railway set set up in his living room and he's the sweariest person Danny Baker's ever met. And, yes. And you know, Danny Baker grew up with a docker for a dad, right? And um, and and Hughie Green's mad idea was to hold a chat show on a nuclear submarine. Yes. Which which goes back and forth between London and New York with celebrities on
2: board. Fucking hell, that would have been brilliant. As long as he didn't have Chris fucking Evans in it. Yeah, yeah, true enough. The opportunity knocks was massive and, and people make the obvious comparison between that and new faces and things like the X Factor but the great thing about Opportunity Knox was that it turned up for half an hour on Monday evening and then it just fucked off for the rest of the week <laughs> you didn't have to think about it again it wasn't in the papers every day
3: yeah I mean um, Michael Ward I suppose became the Ali Jones of his day didn't he by, yes. by winning it um, as you say a child had won well, it before um, Neil Reid 1971 12 years old but also before that you had uh, 1970 Bonnie Langford and uh, later on um, Lena Zavaroni and the British the British get very sentimental about child performers, don't they? I've got to say it it creeps me out personally. It's like I have to unfollow people on Instagram who post too many pictures of their children. Mm. Mm. Um, I, I operate a sort of three strikes and you're out rule. That's It's just me. It's just me. There's yeah. there's there's a gene that I'm I'm missing, obviously, <laughs> right? But the the introduction. Oh man, we, we get to, mm. to this, and in fact, the whole song is is cut from the BBC Four repeat, and yeah. you can see why they've tried to wipe it out of history because you've got this thirteen year old child who's just when opportunity knocks. And Kenny Everett is way too space invady and handsy yep. with him. He's he's all over the kid like a rash, mm. and and everything that Kenny Everett says is on the edge of innuendo. Mm. Mm. He's saying a fresh, vibrant young star. Look at him; he's like a fresh artist. And then then he got he says things like, "You've got a lovely pair of tonsils that constantly need exercise," yeah. and all. It's uh, really uh. really uncomfortable to watch. And I'm not saying Kenny Everett was intending to non-sin but what I do think is this right it's it's as if Kenny Everett's taking it as a given that people think homosexuals are predatory towards young boys so he's playing up to that with a nod and a wink. Hang on
2: Simon hang on Simon At, at the time Kenny Everett's married I know he's married, but the idea that of Kenny Everett as a gay man isn't in the public domain in 1973. Are you sure? Because he's so cow y- Yeah, but I, just, I find that unbelievable. No, 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 no. He he was married to um, Billy Fury's ex-wife. Yeah, yeah. To the audience of 1973, Kenny Everett is a bonkers but straight man. And to be honest with you, I don't see any noncery in this. You know, I mean, yes, he's got his arm rounded and everything, but... I found it really uncomfortable. The hand is clasped around his arm. And yeah, to 21st century eyes, we're always on the lookout for for this sort of thing. Mm. But this would have passed by without comment in 1973. It probably would have passed by
0: without comment. But the I'm not saying the noncery, but the space invasion, as, as Pricey called it, um, is yeah, it's re- it's really uncomfortable. I mean, it, it, he's he's really close to him. He's got his arm around. Maybe in 1973, yeah, it wouldn't have been noticed. Maybe I'm putting that on it in retrospect. But mm. it's it reminded me of those other bullies of the airwaves, if you like, the way that Jimmy Savile used to get in kids' faces in that in that mm. close way. It reminded me of that a little bit, and it actually disposed me in a sense towards hearing the record and trying to be positive about it. But unfortunately. Yeah. We've got a fucking thoroughly horrible record that mm. sounds like, really, it could have been made in 1873, let alone <laughs> 1973. It's a dreadful record. This, this, mm. this, this conflation of the kind of dreariest music hall fucking ball acery with this vaguely hippie sentiment about peace on earth. Mm. We don't do kid stars well in this country, I would argue. I mean, child stardom in general is a bad choice in life, isn't it, really? It, it,
3: it ne- if you watch that, that Britney Spears documentary that's it's out in America no, and it's coming yet. out in this country uh, soon, you won't think that, we, that Americans do child stars uh, yeah. very well either. Trust
0: me. <laughs> You're no. probably right. Child stardom just tends to be a bad choice. Going all the way back to Frankie Lyman, it's a bad choice. Uh, partly because it's never a choice. You know, he... Like many of these weenie boppers, tweenie boppers, have, they have a frightening adulthood inside them. The real kids, yeah. you know, are nothing like Michael Ward. The way he actually deals with Kenny Everett and what Kenny's doing is actually quite adult and quite grown up in a sense. And he gets on with his performance. Yeah, he
2: gets very eye-rolly, doesn't he, while he's being interviewed?
0: He does. He plays it with a straight bat, yeah, he just sort of humours
3: him and gets on with it. I
2: see very little difference between Kenny Everett putting his arm around Michael Ward and Chris Tarrant a few years later on Tiswas reaching under his desk and picking up kids by their ears. I mean, yeah, Michael Ward at this time is an actual performing artist and deserves to be treated just like everyone else, but he's still a kid, and kids are always get patronised on the telly, even today. I mean, Michael Ward
3: disambiguation, to give his full name, because he doesn't actually have a Wikipedia page. All the other Michael Wards do, but not <laughs> this one. So, yeah, what do we know about him? As you say, he's from Workington. Workington in Northern Cumbria is a tough industrial town. Mm. Um, It's the home of Workington Man, the hypothetical ex-Labour voter who supported Leave in 2016 but switched to Tory in 2019. Mm. One of these kind of focus group creations, Mm. um, Workington Man. And and I can only imagine uh, it being a full-on Billy Elliot situation, growing up in a place like that, and having this castrato singing voice in, in your teens. He must have been beaten up at school. And that's why... I don't have it in me to be mean about this song or this kid. I no. feel I feel weirdly protective yeah. of him, yeah. if anything, yeah. you know? So he, he gets to release this this single. It's recorded with the Mike Sam singers, who are that middle-of-the-road group who, who also sang on I Am The Walrus. Yeah. Um, and it's arranged and conducted by Alan Ainsworth, who used to conduct the orchestra at the Royal Command performance. So, mm. you know, thoroughly professional job done on it. The song, Let There Be Peace On Earth, Let It Begin With Me, had previously been sung by Mahalia Jackson, wow. among others. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, it, was, it was written by Jill Jackson-Miller with her husband, Cy Miller, to express Jill's feelings of having emerged from suicidal thoughts via God's unconditional love, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, Jill, Jill Jackson-Miller wasn't her real name, by the way. That was Evelyn Merchant but she was also an actress called Harleen Wood who played bit parts, notably in Three Stooges films. So it's right. quite an interesting backstory to that song. Um, Michael Ward has a hit with it. Next thing you know, he's appearing with Dorothy Squires at Drury Lane Theatre. Mm. The following year, he releases an album, Michael Ward Sings, which is full of sort of gran and granddad favourites, like yeah. I Believe, Amazing Grace, Danny Boy, Over the Wings of a Dove. And then... He just sort of vanishes. Mm. And again, this is why I feel protective towards him. I hope he faded from view for happy reasons. I hope this whole thing didn't fuck him up. And I hope he's had a happy life. Mm. Um, I I did a bit of detective work. And he became a cabaret singer under the name Michael Mm. Sazer. Yeah. And he he actually had another crack at the big time in 1985. Yes. He entered a BBC Scotland talent show called Stars in Your Eyes, not Stars in Their Eyes, still using the name Michael sazer The same year, he, he released a single called When the Lights Go Down, which has a picture of him smouldering on the front, completely unrecognisable from the chubby mm. kid Michael Ward on this Top of the Pops. Mm. And, and from then on, as far as I can gather, he's been in pantos and and he's sung on cruise ships and that sort of thing. Yeah. And I, I wonder how he looks back on, on the few months in 1973 and 74 when he was one of the most famous people in Britain, certainly the most famous child in Britain. Yeah. Um, the, the whole thing's a little bit um, Little Man What Now by Morrissey, if you know that song. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I hope he's perfectly well-adjusted and the whole thing didn't fuck him up. Um, mm. he, one thing I found when I was snooping around, he's built himself a website with Wix, or yeah. half built it. There's <laughs> there's some audio on there. He's put up his versions of songs, including "Ride Like the Wind" and "Feeling Good," and and he looks very tanned and cheerful. And I hope he is cheerful. Mm. But the thing with his website is, the biography section is just a moving image of a turbulent
0: sea, Ooh. which might
3: speak volumes. <laughs>
0: have you been i mean in your sleeping simon did you go on his facebook yeah he he is obviously well adjusted he, i think there's a part a photo isn't there of his recent civil partnership yeah. with his partner and stuff he seems well it's kind of heartbreaking that one of his posts from 2012 not that i went that deep on the research but um, one of his posts in 2012 if anyone knows how to get a copy of this episode of top of the pops please let me know i have oh. never seen it wow um yeah, and he links to the BBC link to Me on Top of the Pops in 73 singing Let There Be Peace on Earth, and he has never seen it, and nobody replies to this post in 2012. He's
2: definitely being cast in the Neil Reed, Nice Young Lad category. Mm. Um, the only concession to popness is his, his very shiny, satiny, brown trousers. <laughs> Apart from that, he, he looks like he's about to post for his school photo for that year, (laughs) to pass on to Nan. But a fortnight from now, the BBC documentary series Man Alive looks into the marketing of young pop lads in an episode called Twinkle, Twinkle Little Star, which covered the James Boys, Ricky Wilde, and in particular Darren Byrne, an 11-year-old son of an EMI executive who's released a cover of Something's Got A Hold of My Heart, and ends with him doing a PA at the Sundowner at edmonton on a saturday morning mm. it's going to go on the video playlist but fucking hell if you haven't seen it you
0: need to oh yes it's amazing mm. and you know that last performance in that documentary um at that mm. place it's really revealing because for a joyous few minutes you actually get to see some real kids not some stage cool kids yes. and those urchins yeah and those real kids you see in that dot you've been watching basically for an hour with this documentary kids being exploited fundamentally by their parents yeah kids who were who were harried and hassled and are frighteningly adult and totally together because they have to be mm. because their parents are watching them at all times and they're pushy as fuck the real kids towards the end and it's brilliant isn't it Where the the reporter kind yeah. of asks them who's they're into who they're into and it's all like gary glitter david bowie Mark isn't it? and all that. it's yeah. just wonderful <laughs> and those kids are having fun You know, um, the kids featured in the documentary, the artists, if you like, are not having any Mm. fun at all. And they've all got incredibly, incredibly pushy parents. So really it's a documentary, not about abuse, I wouldn't say, but certainly about exploitation and horribly pushy parents. But the glimpse of the record business that it shows is gorgeous, isn't it? There's an amazing tracking shot where they go down a corridor at EMI Records down a row of mm. offices if you like and all of them have got their doors open and every single one of them has a different PR A&R person in it in a sense listening to something new or listening to a different yeah. type of music taking notes and there's the amazing moment when he has to meet his entire promotional team in his living room yeah, <laughs> yeah. and it's all Artie fufkins all the way um, yes, waiting, definitely, waiting yes. to talk about it it's an amazing documentary the build up to the show ends up being quite in bed with Chris Needhamish because of the energy yeah. of real people finally from outside of the music business. This crowd yeah. that they're all chasing, but they can't get because he can't perform Darren burney He can't move really. Um, it's no. painful the way that he's tutored. And uh, interesting enough, although that documentary in itself is fascinating and a real time capsule from that era, the next video in the YouTube playlist after it was a Derek yeah. Jameson thing where he caught up with him. Yes. And in the Man Alive documentary, he presents himself as almost like an adult kid who kind of wants it all to happen to him, Yeah, I'm completely part of this. My parents aren't pushing me. And what comes across, Mm -hmm. obviously, in the Derek Jameson interview, he was in no position to make any of these decisions and no. it's all parents it's the old cliche in a sense that, that you, you know it's pa- parents who have failed themselves at, at their own kind of ideas about becoming entertainment stars foisting it all on their kids and you know mm. absolutely saying oh yeah they're free that they, they absolutely want to do it you know kids that age cannot make those kind of decisions so it's simultaneously upsetting but Oh man, the music industry in the 70s, oh for a time machine, so we could go back and work in that world. Cause it just seems, you know, lubricated with cash everywhere in a yeah. way that it just isn't now
2: and the other great thing about that documentary is the same voice of reason is the music journalist oh yeah Roy Carr at the beginning yeah right at the beginning they interview Roy Carr of the NME looking for all the world like a white Donny Hathaway <laughs> who just basically just lays into the whole thing saying this is all bullshit you know it's, it's, they're only doing it because um, of Michael Jackson and there's only one Michael Jackson so why fucking bother
0: yeah I mean good Tom Roy Carr he sticks up for the Jackson 5 um, mm. sat there imperiously looking like Stanley Kubrick a little bit um, you yeah. know it's, it's, it, 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 he, he does make the point that I know the Jackson 5 has musical talent and, it, and it's remarkable how Darren yeah. Byrne is kind of People like, um, you know, and, and Jonathan King with Ricky Wilde kind of debating what his next song should be and arguing about the fact that he can't actually sing. Darren Byrne is mm. kind of, they, they all think he's going to be a star and they might sink 150 grand into him, as they keep putting it, um, because he can basically string kind of two notes together. Um, but it's yeah. all exploitation. It looks uglier the further away we get from that time.
2: Of course, Ricky Wilde went on to have a career steering staring his uh, little sister Kim about yeah, and uh, yeah. Darren Byrne committed suicide. Really? That I didn't yeah. know. That
0: adds an extra pattern of... That's really upsetting because what comes mm. across from that Derek Jameson interview is that he hasn't talked to his mum for a while about all of this. Yeah. And you can see throughout the Man Alive documentary that it's his mum pushing him. It's his mum and his dad pushing him.
2: His nickname afterwards was Top of the Flops. Okay, which is not the kind of mankler you want to carry around as a teenager, is it?
0: No, there's no... no.
2: <laughs> and yeah, these kids do fail and you just
0: wonder, you know, what what damage that's done. And clearly it did a lot yeah. of damage to Darren. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah.
3: If, if there's one thing that's going to get you beaten up more at school than being um, a teen pop star as Michael Ward was, it's being a failed teen yeah. pop star.
0: Yeah, but it's not all gloom, that documentary. I urge people to watch it fundamentally for the brief glorious moments of seeing real people, which happens towards the end of the show. Before that, you get a horrible sense of the exploitative nature of the music business, especially when it comes to kids in this particular period. Um, Because these kids are not normal kids. They speak like adults because they have to, because they've been tutored to. They've been tutored Mm. out of speech. You know, a kid you know, I don't know about you, but say if there was a family party, I wouldn't be going around glad-handing everyone and saying hello and talking to them like adults. I'll be looking for a place <laughs> to hide to a certain extent, you know, yeah. and let the grown-ups get on with it. He's frighteningly confident with adults, Um mm. but it's all masking. Yeah, this... this, this total exploitation at the heart of it.
2: This was cut from the BBC4 repeat, which they seem to do from time to time just to get it in to fit a modern-day schedule. Hmm. Why do you think this was cut, not some of the other things? Was it because of the interview? Or was it because it's a an unsuitable song for Top of the Pops? Bit of both, I think.
0: A little bit of both, but we've had plenty of unsuitable songs for Top of the Pops. It's kind yeah. it's kind of that is part of Top of the Pops. That that moment when your energy just saps and you just think, Why the fuck is this on Top of the Pops? Yeah. I suspect the reason it's been cut from recent repeats is definitely the interview
2: yeah a bit unfair I think if that's the case because I mean I I can imagine Kenny Everett being very hands-on and like that with anyone with I don't know Donna or someone like that
3: yeah but But it's a child and it just you know you just watch it and you put yourself back at that age you imagine how you would have been if an adult a big beardy adult is sort of grabbing at you and making these weird remarks that you don't quite know what he's hinting at yeah um yeah I, I can see why somebody might have thought well if we have to lose five minutes for the repeat that's the five
2: minutes to lose so the following week let there be peace on earth stayed at number 24 but the week after that it moved to number 15 its highest position Michael Ward eventually had a 10-week reign as the overlord of Opportunity Knox, and his debut LP, Introducing Michael Ward, got to number 26 in January of 1974. But the single from it, he failed to chart, and he never bothered the top 40 again.
1: What a grand lad! E you can tell I worked for the BBC. I can't have me bridge work done. I mean, Tony Blackburn gets fresh sets of teeth every day, but me. <laughs> anyway, it's pin back your logo's time for status quo.
2: The camera dollies back into the side. Where Everett, after comparing his BBC dental plan with Tony Blackburn's, whips <laughs> us straight into the next single, Caroline by Status Quo. We covered Quo in chart music number 44, and this, their 14th single, is the follow up to Gerdundala, which failed to chart in the summer of 73. It's the lead-off and only single from their sixth LP, Hello!, which came out a fortnight ago and is currently at number four in the album charts, and was written on a paper napkin by Francis Rossi and Bob Young, a harmonica player who doubled up as their road air in a hotel in Cornwall in 1971. Initially played out at gigs as a slow blues number, it was eventually sped up to double tempo in the studio and entered the chart at number 44 at the beginning of September. Then it soared 16 places to number 28 and began a slow, hard pull up the chart. And this week, it's nipped up two places from number 11 to number 9. Chaps, the last time we covered Quo on chart music, they were firmly in their mid-80s dotage. So it's, mm. it's really strange to see them suddenly being incredibly relevant in their natural environment.
3: Yeah, I mean, when this starts, you can see the audience kids, especially the
2: blokes, are like fucking yes, yeah. you know, at last something we can rock out to. You know, even though this is their full team single and they've been going for a while, and this is their second go around, they pop up as if they're the natural heirs to bands like Slade and the Sweet. Yeah, it's like seeing moth-eaten lions at West Midland Safari Park suddenly <laughs> popping up on the African plains, getting stuck into the gazelles. It's it's they're, fucking weird. It's it's an eye They look so baby-faced.
3: Me. Faced, mm. Weirdly baby-faced. Francis Rossi still has his hair and Rick Parfitt still has his septum. Yes. Um, I, I I tell you who worries me, though. The, the one who worries me is uh, John coglin the drummer. Yeah. He looks malnourished and, and light, light-starved, doesn't he? Mm. He's got that British DNA that makes you look almost translucent, mm. unless you go out of your way to fix that. Yeah. And a combination of, I guess, his rock and roll lifestyle and living in Northern Europe means he probably hasn't seen daylight since <laughs> July. Um, <laughs> he looks vitamin D deficient. There's yes. there's a story that when John Coglin left the band it was during the recording sessions for their 1982 album, and he just got up and kicked the drum kit over. But in all honesty, looking at him
2: here, you'd back the drum kit in that fight. Yes, <laughs> Maybe that's why Rick Parfit fell over the kit when they did Margarita Time on Top of the Bobs, giving him a bit of a head start on it. Ah. Yeah,
3: there's there's a story in uh, Record Mirror from this week in 1973 about Status Quo having some guitars returned to them by Oxford Police after they'd been stolen 18 months ago, Ooh. and then Quo giving the coppers free tickets for their gig at the Oxford Apollo. But I'm I'm just disappointed journalistically. I'm disappointed that the story doesn't say. The Constabulary recently managed to catch music lovers who stole Quo's guitars over 18 <laughs> months ago. I mean, you can call that low-hanging fruit comedically, but there's something satisfying about the obvious joke
0: being made. You know what I mean? Mm. You get a sense of completion, and Record
2: Mirror didn't go there. So.
0: I think this is a cracking record. Yes. Um, I mean, Quo do great intros. They they, they always used to and, – and this, for me, is them settling into, yeah, that thing they're going to now do – for flipping ages until Margarita yeah. Time comes along and kind of, you know, problematizes things a little bit. Their intros basically tell you pretty much everything the record's going to do and then, yeah. quote, <laughs> just set it in motion. Yeah. You know, they were often criticised as repetitive. I think I've mentioned before um, that the Rock Society, uh, York University, um, I used to go to the university bar where they used to meet every uh, Tuesday right? and I remember walking into this bar the rock society was basically a society for the metalheads, basically so it was all metal fans and they used to meet up in this bar every Tuesday and discuss metal related and rock related issues yeah. um, and I remember walking into this bar and I, I, I must have walked in on the middle of a, a, of a building argument because I walked in and all I saw I wa- walked in this bar and the first thing I saw was this bloke basically jabbing his finger into this guy's face who was sat opposite him, slamming both bald fists on the pub table and just screaming, Quo are not fucking repetitive! And then storming out. Um, you know, so clearly, you know, a hot potato, a debate. But that's the point of Quo, I think. That they're, they're, they're almost, the point of Quo, like the Ramones in a sense, is it's in their repetition from this point on. Mm. But the key, really, with this performance, it's a great record, I think, the key with this performance is the audience. I, I was watching yeah. the audience less than the band throughout because mm. they're all finally enjoying themselves and yes. they're all getting down in their own idiosyncratic ways and it's a joy to watch. And I particularly love the moment when the cameraman spots a little kid in the front row and maybe yes. it's part of the tweenie bopper phenomenon that he focuses in on him. But this kid is doing... Just a dance that anyone who was young in the 70s and was a boy and i.e., didn't know how to dance did. The kind of slightly fist forward, vague shadow boxing with some vague movement down below. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's, it's a great <laughs> performance of, 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 of a good song. But the crucial thing is the audience in this section.
2: Quo, by this point, are a people's band, aren't they? As long as those people are white and male. <laughs> yeah, but my mum loved Quo
0: because um, ah. they were fast. That's all that matters, you know, they were fast. And, and. Yeah, they've settled into that. They're just going to make this record now for about the next 10 years. Mm. But I don't really have a problem with it. The Ramones no. always yeah. made the same record.
3: Yeah, I mean, this is good timing for me because I had a quo phase recently, very belatedly, you know, after, after one of the main ones is dead, <laughs> you know. But um, I, I grew up hearing their music more than I really needed to. Um, yeah, my, my best mate was obsessed with them. And yeah, even my mum liked them, um, like Neil's mum. But I never really took the plunge myself to go beyond the hits. Um, But I had a hunch, I've had a hunch for a long time, there must be at least one early status quo album after they stopped being psychedelic, but before they went soft, Mm. which would give me the same Mm. kind of uncomplicated rock satisfaction if I had it on vinyl as, say, Rocket to Russia by Ramones, who Neil mentioned, or I I think another comparison might be Highway to Hell, ACDC that really basic rock yeah, satisfaction totally. you get. And I, I i was sure there must be a Quo cool album that just is that. Um, oh, the, the hilarious thing, by the way, because I, I don't know what I own and what I don't own, so I, I looked through my my, my vinyl, and uh, I found out all I owned by them was on seven inch pictures of matchstick men and in the army now literally the the two sort of extreme bookends of of the era that i was actually interested in you know (laughs) with lost in the middle um so i i I did a bit of a shout out online for advice on that and and the album people kept mentioning was pile driver yeah so i i did a swoop on ebay for a job lot including pile driver just supposing and this four disc collection called from the makers of Right? And Pile Driver yeah. right. and the live disc, the live disc in From the Makers of, both gave me that simple rock satisfaction I was looking for. There's something about them when they mm. lock together that sounds like a dog crunching on a bone. It's almost a physical thing. It's a physical thing that bypasses the brain yeah. and cannot be resisted. And this song, Caroline, is one of the biggies, of course. Yeah. It's from Hello, which is the album after Pile Driver doesn't quite deliver the same amount of heads-down, no-nonsense, mindless boogie as Down Down Mm -mm. the following year. Down Down, fucking hell. Oh, man, yeah. But Caroline, it can't be argued with. And yeah, I I do love the story that you mentioned. It was written by Francis Rossi with his roadie on a hotel napkin because it does sound like Mm. a song. That was written on a hotel napkin, and I mean that in the very best way. <laughs> and they
2: weren't gigging at the time; they'd gone on holiday. They they lived together with their old ladies, yeah, having a bit of time off. But you know, you can't you can't have a holiday from being status quo, can you? Going back to John Coglin for a minute, one thing that impressed me about him, apart from looking at, as if
3: he's about to die, <laughs> is that he's he's holding one of his sticks loosely across his palms or chopstick style over the snare like a jazz drummer and I don't think you get Mm. a metal or hard rock drummer doing that now I mean maybe Neil can correct me on that but it's just it just really struck me anyway
0: it's a thing from jazz it's your classic 60s drummer and that's what he looks like he looks like Mm. he could be in a hippie he he looks like he could be in fucking Greenslade or something he's just knocking something out very very regular and metronomic and that's the point of this record
2: anything else to say about this it's quo, isn't it? <laughs> I think there is a
3: sense that Quo are the sort of band who would be deemed okay by the um, angry mums writing letters. Quo okay, yeah, Quo okay <laughs> by the angry mums writing letters yeah. to the Daily Mirror because you know, yeah, they rock and their songs are kind of loosely about shagging, as all rock and roll is. But they don't look like mm. weird space aliens. They're wearing double, they're in no. double denim or waistcoats. Mm. So yeah, there, there would be the sense that they're all right geezers or whatever do you know what i mean yeah, yeah. i've, I've got no problem with quo being that but yeah I, I think they would maybe pass a test that maybe wizard or sweet would fail <laughs> in the eyes of Mub yeah and yeah probably
0: and it's unfeasibly exciting yeah. caroline i mean it's not one of their greatest but it's exciting because it's coming after m ward and it's coming after elton john we've had a fuck ton <laughs> of syrup before this so it's yeah. joyous when it comes through
2: yes so the following week, Caroline nudged up one place to number eight and then spent two weeks at number five, its highest position, by which time Hello became their first of four LPs to get to number one in the UK. The follow-up, Break the Rules, got to number eight in May of 1974 and the follow-up to that, Down Down, gave them their one and only number one single in January of 1975.
0: Post your free job
2: on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Richard and Brenna,
3: gonna make
2: your lives better today.
1: If you'll subscribe to our podcast.
2: You know, it's all about how to get the most out of your partner.
1: And we're partners.
2: So we know all about it.
1: It's good. Get it wherever you want to get it when you go and get it from your podcast place. Richard and Greta from The Great Big Owl. You know? You know? Fantastic. That was Sweet Caroline at number nine. See this massive thing? This is BBC Camera One, and it's through this obelisk that we're going to see now pans people dancing to Detroit Spinners!
2: i ran away from home and from everything we fade into a feathery backdrop then a starburst effect containing everett perched upon the back of a massive camera boom the end of which is aimed squarely at pan's people as they prepare to do a bit for the next single ghetto child by the detroit spinners Formed in Ferndale, Michigan in 1954, the Domingos were a vocal group who were eventually signed to Tri-Fi Records in 1961 by its owner, Harvey Fuqua, who became an occasional member of the group before becoming head of artists at Motown their debut single that's what girls are made for got to number 27 in the american charts later that year but when motown bought out their label and the entire artist stable they were shuffled down the pack and spent much of the 60s acting as road managers chaperones and chauffeurs for the more favored acts releasing only one single a year with intermittent success in nineteen sixty nine however, they were moved onto the Motown side project label VIP and were given a single written by Stevie Wonder and Cyrita it's a shame. Not only did it give them their first hit in America for five years, it was also their first dent in the UK chart under the name The Motown Spinners, so the pop craze youngsters wouldn't confuse them with the Liverpoolian jumper wearers, <laughs> getting to number 20 in December of 1970. In 1972, on the advice of Aretha Franklin, they let their Motown contract expire and immediately signed to Atlantic, who relocated them to Philadelphia. To work with Tom Bell, and their first single, How Could I Let You Get Away, got to number 77 in America. But when DJ started playing the B side, I'll Be Around, it roared back up the chart to number three, but shamefully didn't do anything here. However, the next single, Could It Be I'm Falling in Love? mark the return of the rebranded Detroit Spinners getting to number 11 in the UK in June of this year. This is the follow-up, which entered the charts at number 38 a fortnight ago. And this week, it's up four places from number 24 to number 20. And here come the people of Pan to emote to (laughs) it. Ooh, bodies entwined in artistic forms, eh, lads?
3: Ooh. (laughs) Yeah, we, um, we we get the biggest whipping away of the Wizard's Curtain yet um, in the intro mm. to this when Kenny Everett goes, this is camera one. And he goes, this is camera one and it's through this obelisk that we're going to watch Pan's people. And at that mm. moment the camera that we're actually watching him through, which is obviously on a boom, suddenly zooms up into the rafters, looking down on the whole studio floor. And I've said you see a lot of floor in this episode. Um, I I mentioned uh, Guy Palette uh, earlier on, the Belgian artist who did Bowie's Mm. Diamond Dogs and the amazing collaborative book, Rock Dreams with Nick Cohn. And um, this is the second time I've thought about him today because One thing he did a lot was to whip away The Wizard's Curtain. He painted the artwork for the opening credits of a French TV series about film called Cinema Cinema. And it really reminds me of this Top of the Pops moment because in those opening credits, it's all about zooming out, pulling away and showing you the cameramen and directors and stagehands behind the scenes. And it's a really interesting directorial decision in this episode of Top of the Pops. Um, mm. But before we start on the song or the routine, I have a question. How do you pronounce the name of the Michigan city beginning with D that was the home of the motor industry? Detroit. Detroit, right? And how do you say the name of the band and also the Emeralds from that city? The Detroit Spinners. You're saying Detroit. I swear most people say Detroit Spinners or Detroit Emeralds. Yeah. Isn't that strange? But they do. People do. I remember when Working My Way Back to You was number one in 1980. It was the Detroit Spinners, but nobody says, I'm going to Detroit on holiday. No. Not that as much of a destination. Uh-huh. It's just a, just a little side note there. But the thing with the Spinners is they were entering a crowded market. Yeah. There, there, there's a long tradition in black America of vocal groups with matching suits and choreographed dance moves. So yeah. from the ink spots through the moon glows who Harvey Fuqua was in, And the Miracles, and the Dells, and the Four Tops, the OJs, the Contours, the Temptations, Mm. the Detroit Emeralds, the Dramatics, (laughs) the Delphonics, the Stylistics, so I I probably missed a few out, but the Spinners emerged in the middle of all that, and yeah, they struggled to stand out, and yeah, being signed to Motown kind of helped, but also hindered them. Mm. I mean, yeah, it meant they got given the odd phenomenal song, like It's a Shame, as you mentioned, Mm. but... Several of those other vocal groups I mentioned were also on Motown, and the spinners were low on the pecking order, as you yeah. say, and they they were given sort of like dog's body jobs. Um, they were even shipping clerks at times, so they were yes. in the Motown warehouse, just mm. sending out the consignments of other people's records at that, Namasté that hurt. And <laughs> it's a bit like how Martha Reeves started out as the receptionist and became yeah. a star, but in but in reverse, yeah. in reverse. Mm. So and they they were always the opening act and never the headliner on tour. Yeah. And yeah, um, so Aretha persuades him to sign with Atlantic. That's the making of them. Yeah. Because, yeah, almost immediately they start having top ten Billboard hits. As you mentioned, I'll Be Around, which, uh, yeah, it blew my mind that that's not a UK hit. What the fuck? I know. Um, hmm. Could it be a Fallen in Love? And this one, Ghetto Child. Ghetto Child, written by Tom Bell and Linda Creed, who did most of the Stylistics hits. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's about trying to get away from the circumstances you were born into, but you can never quite escape. But it interests me musically much more than lyrically, because it's a prime example of a thing, right? People always praise predominantly white genres like prog rock and, in more recent years, math rock for having tricky time signatures, mm. right? It's meant to blow our minds that songs like Money by Pink Floyd or Golden Brown by The Stranglers have five beats or seven beats to the bar or mm. whatever, right? People wank themselves dry about that, right? <laughs> yeah. But all the while, black music was doing that effortlessly. Seventy soul groups like the Delphonics on Radio Not Here I Come, which yes. is another tom bell production um we're doing that with such ease and ghetto child has a really inventive time signature but it's delivered so smoothly that it doesn't trip you up yeah you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. The, co- the chorus. I mean, it, it's not 4-4. Four, four. The chorus is, uh, and it, it, it actually makes you dance more because of the weird time signature. Mm. Um, it makes you move your ass more yes. because of the, the weird time signature. I, I think it's one of their best, actually. I, I don't yeah. know where it's seen in the Detroit Spinners, there I go, <laughs> <laughs> you know, catalogue. But I think it's a fantastic single. And actually, you know what? There's a lot of blandness, in a sense, about Pan's People's rendition of it here. But I think they do it justice. You focus on the record, you also focus on them a little bit. Yes. They oddly give me a memory of... um I mean, this is proof of how little we do in lockdown. All I could think of looking at Pan's people was Sainsbury's because they're wearing <laughs> exactly the same colour as Sainsbury's uniforms. Just goes <laughs> right. to show I'm only going okay. to fucking supermarkets these days, <laughs> but it's i mean how do you dance to this in a way that renders the lyrics meaningful you can't <laughs> no. really they do put a and bit of it god in god there god they
2: didn't yeah <laughs> well, it's, No, my god it's that, that was about have been. Um, disenfranchised black american kids oh my god oh my yeah, god that yeah that could have gone yeah. extremely wrong it in 90s. Gone <laughs> it very terribly totally wrong. wrong it
0: it could up in some of the movements of the dancers when they are reflecting the lyrics. They're really seeing it as you know. They're, they're, I think there's a there's a line about people used to call me names and stuff, yeah. and and the dancer just puts her hands, uh, hands to her ears and things like that. So yeah. they're just reflecting it in a universal rather than a racial sense. But it's a pretty good routine. Yeah, and the chorus is accentuated because then it just focuses on pans people from the back, throwing shadows on a big white oh, screen. That and brilliant. it's brilliant.
2: It looks brilliant. It is really effective. Pants people look fucking skill, it has to be said. They're they're wearing, like, flared to... Fox skin tight crimsony bodysuits, mm. essentially looking like five sexy Steve Austins. <laughs> <laughs> Pants people have been on absolute fire this past month in top of the pops. They've done A Think of You by the Detroit Emeralds, mm-hmm. Nutbush mm-hmm. City Limits by Ike and Tina Turner, Monster Mash by Bobby Pickett, and last week they did Who's That Lady by the Isley Brothers. So they're being given good shit to emote to. Yeah. And I say that the, the time signature
3: of the song doesn't trip you up, but nevertheless, it must have been difficult to choreograph to. Mm, and yeah, and yeah, yeah, now yeah. that now that we've seen that overhead shot of the studio and yeah. how shambolic and chaotic everything is, especially with Kenny Everett madding about, right? Yeah. I've got increased respect for Pan's people, mm, for yeah. Flick Colby and the camera crew, and the director, Bruce Milliard, somehow making a classy dance routine in those circumstances Mm. with that whole fucking circus going on, right? By the way, I looked up Bruce Milliard on IMDb, Mm. and he directed Clunk Click, presented by Jimmy Savile, which ran for 21 (laughs) episodes. When I read that, Uh I thought I was losing my fucking mind. If it was just (laughs) the public information film about seatbelts, surely that formula is going to be wearing a bit thin over twenty one episodes. But no It was a chat show. Yeah, kids variety show. Guests including Gary Glitter and Freddie Starr. Fuck me, what a parade of wrongness that is. That was brought up, wasn't it,
2: when uh, all the U Tree stuff came up that year. Yeah, game. yeah. Um, I also, also interviewed that. Pan's people as well. And they come Jeez. off as very posh young ladies. Yeah, there's a sort of stop motion clip in in the woods at night of Jimmy Savile chasing pans people around trees, which hasn't aged. Jesus well. Christ! Oh, in hell, <laughs> probably not going to be shown on BBC Four at any point ever. No.
0: Pans people come across w- really well in this clip. yes, and, and it's because I think Flick Colby's not over-choreographed it. Yeah. There are things that they do in tandem, but every now and then they're just allowed to get down to this amazing record. Mm-hmm. That's what it feels like. Anyway, I'm sure it is all choreographed, but it don't feel like that. No, It feels much more natural than that. It, it's a really, really good dance routine. I agree that this is
3: Pans people at their very best. Um yeah, yeah, I I love the outfits, those deep red, velvety flared jumpsuits, gold platform shoes. Mm. And they're they're somehow shot against plain blackness, so the picture is cropped just enough to hide the shambles surrounding them. Yeah. Um and yeah, at one point they do that thing <laughs> yeah, yeah, throwing yeah. a shadow play against the back wall which looked amazing yes and they do they also do that that trademark thing of theirs of all uniting into a single file line facing the camera so it looks like one Mm. dancer and then one Mm. of them peels away to do her solo bit right and I thought watching this that the time pressure they work under each week is really visible and I don't mean that in a bad way but you can see in their faces that they're concentrating on remembering their parts. Yeah. It's never seamless. Yeah. There's always the sense that they've had two days to drill it into their memories, mm. but it isn't muscle memory. You know, it's not like the Moulin Rouge or the Folie Bergère no. where they've been doing it the same routine mm. for years and it probably comes easier than walking. But Pants people do it week after week. And we talk about satisfaction with them. In Mm. all honesty, for me, it rarely delivers that. But this routine is genuinely sexy, I thought. But also Mm. elegant and classily choreographed, cleverly choreographed. It's not just five pieces of skirt to use the 70s vernacular mm. you know shaking their asses in thigh high boots for three minutes it's no it's better than it needs to be and it's better than we deserve it to be i mm. think mm. but it isn't even the best routine to ghetto child i've seen right oh, really there's a televised spinners show from around this time yes which you kindly sent me the link to out oh yes from 1976 going round with the spinners a soundstage concert and and during the, this song, um, Henry Fambra, who's the one with the twirly Poirot moustache, <laughs> he, he mimes rolling and smoking a drug cigarette. Yes. <laughs> um, and one of the other ones... Grabs it off him and stamps it out on the ground like not so fast nicotine, um, and and he, <laughs> he he frisks him for all his weeds and chucks it uh, chucks his stash on the floor
2: it, as part of the dance routine. It's amazing. That's a fucking incredible TV show. I, I thoroughly advise all pulp crazy youngsters to investigate it. But yeah, I mean we've got to bear in mind that this is a group that's been together for nearly nineteen years, which is you know unthinkable at the time for a rock. Band. Mm. but when you're black Americans that's how it is you're allowed to carry on and, and try new things you know black don't crack as they say yeah you're right when you look at the uh, Wikipedia entries for any
3: of those vocal groups that, that I listed most of whom we associate with the 1970s because that's why they were having hits over here mm. but you look at it they all formed in 1954 or something yeah yeah, 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 the, yeah.
2: the Times prime example of that yeah, I mean what's the, what's the equivalent in Britain it would be I don't know someone like Alvin Stardust I suppose, You know what yeah. I mean? It'd be like a skiffle band in the 50s suddenly becoming one of the biggest glam rock bands in the country. <laughs> so, the following week, Ghetto Child jumped eight places to number 12, and a fortnight later, it got to number seven, its highest position. The follow-up... The collaboration with Dion Warwick, Then Came You, became their one and only number one in America, but only got to number 29 over here in November of 1974. But they'd have three more top 40 hits during the tail end of the 70s, including a re-release of Could It Be I'm Falling In Love in 1977. And they'd get to number one over here when Working My Way Back to You spent two weeks there in April of 1980. The other fucking class Song of theirs, of course, is Rubber Band Man. That's yeah. fucking brilliant. <laughs>
1: And now, it's new release time. And what a new release we have for you, ladies and gentlemen. He's come all the way from his dressing room to sing this one at you. It's Love Is All by Engelbert Umpadink.
2: Everett noisily snogs the big illustration of the 30s flapper woman being egged on by Leeds United bobble hat man as a couple of the kids nervously look on. He then pivots to the new release section annotated by fuzzy guitar and an illustration of a man and woman water skiing. Presumably it's their opportunity to get in something that's either going to be massive in a few weeks time or is something off the beaten track possibly a bit ever, (laughs) but this time they've gone for Love is All by Engelbert Humperdinck. Born in Siegberg, Prussia in 1854, Engelbert Humperdinck was a composer who wrote his first composition at the age of seven and became best known for the opera Hansel and Gretel before dying at the age of 67 without ever getting into the charts or on top of the pops. In 1965, Gordon Mills, who was having massive success as the manager of Tom Jones, nicked the dead composer's name and gave it to Arnold Dorsey, who was born in Madras in 1936 and had been working as a nightclub singer in the 60s. Later that year, Humperdinck went to Spain to link up with the songwriter Bert Kampfert and was offered a selection of songs, including Strangers in the Night. When he got back to London, he recorded it with a view to putting it out as his debut single, but was prevented from doing so because Frank Sinatra had already bags in it. Undeterred, he bided his time and his first single, a cover of the 1949 country song Release May," spent five weeks at number one in March and April of 1967, famously keeping Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane by The Beatles off number one.
3: Swinging 60s there.
2: (laughs) It's also prevented Edelweiss by Vince Hill, and This Is My Song by Harry Seacombe from getting to number one as well, but the Beakle-centric music press won't tell you that. (laughs) His next four singles all made the top three, including another number one with The Last Waltz, which spent another five weeks at number one, Holding Off I'll Never Fall In Love Again by Tom Jones, excerpt from a teenage opera by Keith West, and Flowers in the Rain by The Move, And by the end of the 60s, he'd notched up eight top ten hits. After ATV produced the Engelbert Humperdinck show at the turn of the decade, which was broadcast in America on ABC, he started to spend more time over there, particularly in Las Vegas, where he recorded a live LP with a pre-fame Three Degrees as backing singers. But he's back in the UK now, and this is the follow-up to I'm Leaving You, which failed to chart, and because it's a new release, it's not in the charts yet. So yeah, the new release section. So, Sorrow by David Bowie. Get Up, Stand Up by Bob Molly and the Wailers. "High Ground by Stevie Wonder. I Love You Love by Gary Glitter. Photograph by Ringo Starr. Dynamite by Mud. Daytona Demon by Susie Quattro. My Cuckoo by Alvin Stardust. All of these technically count as new releases. So, Hunter Chin, why have the BBC <laughs> elected to give Engelbert the rub?
3: It seems like a scam to me to get heritage acts mm. who mm. who haven't had a hit in a while onto the show in the knowledge that it gives the slightly older viewers something familiar to cling to. Like when they had Lulu going,
2: everybody's got the clap. Could it have something to do with Engelbert being the star of Engelbert and the Young Generation, which was broadcast on BBC One only last year with the goodies as residential special guests and, you know, with the possibility of a new series coming up, you know, because as we all know, the BBC looks after its own. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, probably that. It is probably that. And in so doing,
0: all of the energy that's come into this show via Quo and The Spinners evaporates almost immediately yes. and it's so fucking yes. annoying. This dreary yeah. song. I mean, for, you know, it's telling kids watching this and the kids in the audience a really important lesson, I guess, that your joy uh, must be confined. It has to be rationed out and portioned out. You can't stay happy for the duration Top of the pops. Every now no. and then, something like this is going to come along and make it feel like an overlong school assembly. Yeah, it's a life west. lesson.
3: Eh? It's it's Rudyard Kipling's "If."
0: in television <laughs> <form>. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's just a you know like an unfunny family gathering or something. You, you, you just and I feel similar waves of aggravation towards this in the context of this episode, as I would later on in my life. You know, say when the old sailor came on in a in a late seventies episode, I feel the similar, exactly similar evaporation of joy. And and that's exactly what's going on. Here he is with his monstrous, lycanthropic Leicester noggin. Oh, it, 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 yes. It, you know... <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, you you may recall in an earlier episode of Chart Music that Taylor revealed his fascination with light ten to 10 is that you wouldn't fuck with <laughs> on account of them being more beast than man. I think I believe Tommy Cannon and Ted Rogers were the two examples, and and I contend that we have another one here. I mean, he's got a fucking oh, massive right. head, got, and yeah. no amount of side burnage can hide it. It's pure Leicester genetics, i say. Oh, definitely.
0: Yeah. Definitely Leicester genetics. Leicester
2: man. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you know, Top of the Pops is not a music show, and, and that's kind of what's interesting about it. But I do think mm. that, you know, although that's crucial to what makes it special, that it is a reflection of the charts. And this isn't even a reflection of the fucking charts.
2: No. And it's this no, endless this, this is the need. problem
0: to keep that older section of the audience happy. It's one of the most persistently irritating aspects of Top of the Pops, and this is the perfect example of it. Yeah,
2: I mean, this wouldn't have encouraged my dad to put Top of the Pops on put it that way yeah it's
0: not even doing its job all it's doing is annoying no. the congregation i mean
2: engelbert's got this very expensive looking black velvet suit with fucking massive condor collars <laughs> i mean if, if engelbert humbling decided to run off beachy head i reckon he'd be carried <laughs> at least 200 feet by the collars of his shirt yeah he could be in one of those um you know those those competitions
3: they have on worthing pier with yes. Homea- yes. homemade airplanes you run off the end and in, the, in a yeah. flying machine, yeah, you could just do that. Yeah. So, do you know? Um, it's it's interesting that you listed all those songs that were kept off the top by Engelbert back in mm. the sixties, because yeah. it's this just proves it's not as if this kind of music doesn't get into the charts. No. Um, in its own right, without having to have a helping hand, right? No. You know, there's this whole idea that the swing in 60s was the Beatles and the Stones and the Kinks and the Who and all that. But actually, as you've demonstrated, it was Vince Hill, Harry Seacombe, Tom Jones him. and Engelbert Humperdinck getting yeah. to number one all the time. So, yeah, putting him in Top of the Pops now in 1973 when he hasn't even got a fuck. Earn the hit. Don't just, yeah, you know... Uh, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You're fucking Engelbert yeah. Humperdinck. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to rewind quickly to the... Um, to the intro bit, because Kenny Everett was was snogging one of those bits of Art Nouveau, mm. those painted mm. faces on the studio scenery. And those faces, to me, they look like pastiches of Alphonse Mucha, the, the Czech painter whose work was often seen on advertising for soap and perfume. I'm not sure if it was... Oh, yes. It, it might have been a direct lift, I don't know. But um, the other thing I noticed... Uh, yeah, and he's snogging one of them, and he goes, ooh, cheese and onion. Mm. But there's this young lad behind him, In a, um, in a yellow tartan jacket Mm. who looks exactly like the actor Rasmus Hardiker. Um, if you don't know who Rasmus Hardiker is, he plays Tommy's pest control apprentice in Saxondale. Oh, yes. And he's Jack D's daughter's boyfriend in Lead Balloon. You know that actor. Ah, right. Um, He's he's the face you see when you look up the word sallow in the encyclopedia, um, and um, it's just it looks so much like him. You know when you see faces from the present but in the past, mm. like yeah. like you're in the hotel bar in The Shining, um, <laughs> or or that picture that's, that's done the rounds of someone who looks exactly like Nicolas Cage from the Civil War era. It's mm. it's, it's one of those to me. Maybe it's Rasmus Hardiker's dad. <laughs> anyway, I just wanted, just wanted to get that in.
2: Simon, you said earlier on uh, that. People our age, five, six, whatever, we'd be spending a lot of time figuring the world out. And, um, you know, this would have confused the fuck out of us because (laughs) already there there was some sense of order in your world. You know, at this time you go to school, at that time you come back from school. Mm. You know, half past four, this program would be on. These people would be in it and you wouldn't see them at any other time. And to me, this would have confused the fuck out of me seeing Engelbert Humperdinck on Top of the Pops. Mm. It is weird. It'd be like seeing Basil Brush on Weekend World. Seeing Engelbert Humperdinck on top of the pops as a five-year-old, and I already knew that he didn't belong. I don't think he thinks he belongs. This would have upset me.
3: I mean, I'm sure he was happy to go on there, but I don't think he thinks it's his world. You can see it. Yeah, he doesn't make any. He's, he makes no concessions to top of the pops world. He just goes on and does his shtick no. that he would do if it was Vegas or, or anywhere else.
2: And the kids in the audience make no concession to him. Yeah. Oh man, alive! <laughs> this is the thing. Right. First
3: of all, there's the song itself, which confuses them. Mm. Mm. This song, Love Is All, the first line is just the word... Yesterday, yesterday. And all the kids are surely thinking he's doing the Beatles cover. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, totally. You can see the confusion in their faces when the song goes somewhere else. So it's it's written by Les Reed and Barry Mason. Les Reed co-wrote It's Not Unusual for Tom Jones. Barry Mason Mm. co-wrote Love Grows Where My Rosemary Goes for Edison Lighthouse. Two brilliant Mm. songs. And together they wrote Delilah for Tom, as well as... The Last Waltz for Engelbert. And I hate them for that, and I'll tell you why, (laughs) right? The Last Waltz was number one when I was born. Right. Oh, mate. I really resent Engelbert for that. If my (laughs) mum... If my mum had held on a couple of weeks, I could have had the Bee Gees, Massachusetts. Or if I'd been born, to be honest, life-threateningly premature, um, I could have had San Francisco, Be Sure to Wear Flowers in Your Hair by Scott McKenzie. But no, I got Engelbert <laughs> fucking Humperdinck. Oh, my! at least you didn't name you after him. <laughs> well, there is that. I nearly got named Jesus because uh, my dad thought... What? Jesus yeah, Prize? My-,
0: oh, my God. Jesus Fucking
2: <laughs> Pri- revelation or top revelation.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, my my dad thought Jesus Price would be hilarious. It right? would be man. <laughs>
2: Fuck. That was a
3: um, name that would have
0: opened doors.
3: Yeah, well, it would have shut a few as well. But um <laughs> but my, my mum stepped in, my mum vetoed it <laughs> and named me after Simon D, the disc jockey.
0: Wow.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, imagine the singing you'd get non-stop. You'd fucking hate Andrew Lloyd Webber Yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, they're they're really phoning it in, I think, Reed and Mason, with this song. Um I was at, I'm actually more interested in the B-side, Lady of the Night. I don't know if you looked into this. <laughs> no. It's a, it's a song of romance, ostensibly, but f- one assumes it's about a hooker, mm-hmm. uh, a bit of a sort of pretty woman scenario. It doesn't explicitly say she's a prostitute, except in the title, but there's a verse that goes, Lady of the Night, I'm familiar with your way. Must you flee with the morning light? Must you sleep away the day? Lovely lady, say you'll stay and greet the dawn. So if she is a hooker, right, he's mm. paying overnight rates. Mm. All right, Enklebert, someone's yeah. earning. You know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, now. Um, I mean, the other possibility is that he doesn't know what a Lady of the Night is or he thinks we don't or Johnny Harris and Paul Anker who actually wrote it. But anyway, he's, he's, he's an interesting figure, 70s Engelbert, right? In that he's good-looking in precisely all the ways that mean nothing to teenage girls, mm. right? Mm. He, he's darkly handsome, right? He's, yeah. he's born in Madras and said to be of Anglo-Indian descent, although that's been questioned. His parents are Welsh and German, apparently. Um He's 37 at this point, and he gives the girls feelings they don't know what to do with. He's mm. an attractive older man, like one of their dad's good-looking friends. He's mm. dishy in a way that mums understand, mm. right? Mm. So he's got his, his practised cabaret singer moves, his big signet rings on his fingers, his velvet suit that you mentioned, his open-neck shirt, and, and his Cossack hair-sprayed hairdo. He, yes. he, he's like an English Tom Jones but without the sex. Mm. I mean mm. I I say without the sex but apparently Engelbert Engelbert's wife once said that she could paper the bedroom with all the paternity lawsuits yes. that he filed <laughs> against him. So that that I guess that is another Tom Jones comparison. But he's attractive in a way that's slightly off from the perspective of young girls. And unfortunately, he's singing straight at a crowd mm. of young girls here. Yeah. the the, the mismatch between what he's offering and the audience he's addressing gets too much, and some of the girls down the front start giggling at yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And then start chit-chatting. Yeah, but he's he's unfazed. He just does his thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's here to sell a song, isn't he? To get his product over. It's fucking ballad. It's a,
3: he's belting it out. It's only a slight song, but he's inflating it as richly as he can with that voice of his, like a balloon mm. full of gravy. <laughs> it's a proper gravy <laughs> balloon of a single. And spoiler alert, it isn't even a hit. But what he's done, he's reminded a primetime audience that he exists. Yeah, and that's yeah. the yeah, main thing. It might shift a few LPs rather than singles. Um, it's certainly not gig tickets, because he had no intention of even playing... Live in the UK soon, so it kind of been that. At this point mm. in 73 and 74, Engelbert's mostly doing residencies at the Warwick Musical Theatre, Rhode Island, which was a massive green and yellow striped circus tent, Right. and the Riviera in uh, Las Vegas, which was a proper mm. old rat pack casino that mm. Dean Martin had a stake in it. And Do and, uh... <laughs> you have any chips with a stake? Sorry, that was. <laughs> <laughs> wee, fuck's sake. And uh and it's it's the casino that you see in the film casino and oh, right. it's in Oceans Eleven and it's in Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice and it's in Diamonds of Forever. That that was his world mm. and that's the thing. He's seen Engelbert as a bit of a joke figure yeah. here. So certainly to the girls down the front in that audience he is but not in America. Um, no he's got he's got a fucking star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and he, he made enough money in the 70s to buy Jane Mansfield's old mansion in LA, the Pink Palace. Right. And we think he's just that cheesy bloke from Leicester with a funny stage name. Yeah. Yeah, Shaking
0: Jones. It begs the question, why he fucking needed to do this at all? Yeah. Um, there's just a whole heap of cognitive dissonance and category errors going on here. Mm. He doesn't really understand who he's singing to. No. Um, and they don't understand him. No. Um, and yet we all at home have to endure this shit. Because it yeah. is a pretty fucking awful song, isn't it? I'm not wrong there, but it's it's, it's not a great one. Yeah. Um, there's some interesting textures in it. but It
2: sounded very familiar to me. I th- it floated around, this song. It, it, it had a shelf life a bit longer than its chart position suggests. Put it that right, way. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But I, I think
0: he does notice that the kids are not paying attention and are, in fact, giggling at him a little bit. i yeah. detected a few expressions on his face where he looks well pissed off. <laughs> yeah. but, um, I think he does manage to cloak it. He does go for it with gusto, but yeah. it's, it's a total mismatch. Well, he's got to. What else can he do? Yeah, it's a total mismatch and does not belong on Top of the pots. Not no. at this point anyway. You know, it's actually no. been going pretty well. The energy's up. Let's keep it there, not fucking destroy it in this... Four odd minutes
2: of, of the hump so the following week love is all entered the charts at number 47 then dropped to number 49 then rallied to number 44 then dropped out the follow up free as the wind the theme from Papillon failed to chart beginning a chart drought which lasted 15 years which was broken by his cover of nothing's gonna change my love for you which got to number 93 in March of 1988, yes, the Glen Medeiros song. Fucking, oh my hell. god! Yeah. <laughs> And on that jarring note, we're going to step away from this episode of Top of the Pops for a wee while, and we'll come back tomorrow with the denouement of Chart Music, episode 57. Just before I go, little reminder, the video playlist. Everything we talk about, everything the guest mentioned... We've whacked it on a video playlist on YouTube and you can reach it at bit.ly L-Y, slash cm57vids bit.ly slash cm57vids My name's Al Needham. They've been Simon Price and Neil Colcone. See you tomorrow. Stay pop crazed. Chart ah! music. Great
1: big. It's an S-Pod thing, the podcast revisiting S Club 7's insane TV show. Yeah, I can't imagine anyone's binge-watched this, anyone who's not on drugs. <laughs> Thank you for bringing this into my life. Uh, it was <laughs> honestly truly appalling. <laughs> Guests helped me analyse the show in more detail than anyone ever asked for. It feels weird to me to say the phrase sex object in a show that <laughs> was aimed at six-year-olds.
3: Do you think do you think this is one of the problems with this show is that seven is too much?
1: It's an S-Pod thing from Great Big Owl.